0: As a warning, this episode includes descriptions of violent acts and offensive language. Please be advised.
1: It's June 5th, 1966, a Sunday. Astronaut Gene Cernan is making the second American spacewalk, two hours and seven minutes outside the Gemini 9 capsule as it orbits the Earth. Down on terra firma, James Meredith, who had integrated the University of Mississippi in 62, is launching his own historic walk, the March Against Fear. The goal, highlight continuing racial oppression in the Mississippi Delta and encourage African Americans to register to vote. He plans to walk from Memphis, Tennessee, down through the Mississippi Delta and over to Jackson 270 miles, all alone. It's dangerous territory. Mississippi, and especially the places along Meredith's route, had the highest per capita rate of lynchings in the United States from 1880 to 1950. In 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till was murdered there and dumped in the Tallahatchie River. On the second day of the march, Meredith is walking down a rural stretch of Highway 51 in Hernando, Mississippi, when he's shot three times, in his legs, back, and head, by an unemployed hardware clerk who loaded his 16-gauge shotgun with birdshot shells. Meredith is wounded, but not severely. Still, he's rushed to a Memphis hospital for treatment. Within hours, all of the major civil rights organizations with the exception of the NAACP, rally to the cause and pick up the march. They face death threats, arrest and tear gas as they walk through the Mississippi Delta. The new chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Stokely Carmichael, delivers his famous Black Power speech that gets international attention. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. arrives to lend support and he attracts an even larger crowd. Over three weeks, ordinary citizens, both black and white, come from all parts of the country to join the march. On June 25th, James Meredith is released from the hospital and rejoins the march alongside King and other leaders. The next day, an estimated 15,000 marchers enter the city of Jackson and gather on the grounds of the Capitol. There are speeches, protest songs, and celebration. Ultimately, they had registered more than 4,000 new Black voters. This is a Mississippi Freedom Trail podcast, a series where historians and experts help us explore some of the most significant events of the state's civil rights movement. You'll also hear real stories of people who were there and who made a difference and why what took place then is still so relevant to us today. Long before James Meredith's march against fear, there were other champions of voting rights, many of them not household names. Take Amzie Moore. He was born on a plantation near Greenwood, Mississippi in 1911 His parents separated when he was young, and his mother died when he was 14, leaving him to fend for himself. Moore bounced around, staying with family members and friends, while attending high school and working various jobs. He picked cotton, worked part-time at cafes and hotels. Eventually, he got a coveted job as a post office custodian. In 1935, Amzie Moore did something most blacks in Mississippi couldn't. Let's rewind. In 1868, Mississippi adopted a new constitution that gave all formerly enslaved black men citizenship, the right to bear arms and the right to vote. 22 years later though, it was replaced by a new constitution that implemented literacy tests and poll taxes as a prerequisite for registering essentially disenfranchising nearly all African Americans for decades. Even though he only made it through 10th grade, in 1935, Amsey Moore was able to clear those hurdles and register to vote. He could only vote in general elections, not the primaries. Mississippi was one of several southern states that let the party make the rules, and the Southern Democratic Party made being white a prerequisite for primary voting. Amzie Moore wanted more. He thought, he said, that God had ordained white people
0: to be superior because they were superior. My name is Charlie Cobb, and I was formerly, uh, in fact, between the years 1962 and 1967, a field secretary for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi.
1: Cobb is the author of several books on the civil rights movement. He worked as a journalist for NPR, PBS's Frontline, and National Geographic magazine. Cobb says, in 1940, Amzie Moore attended a conference for blacks who were interested in improving economic and educational opportunities, and it changed everything. He learned about the movement for racial equality. He secured a federal loan to build a brick house with indoor plumbing and he got married. Two years later, he joined the Army, traveled the world, and realized that Blacks weren't inferior. They were being denied all kinds of rights they deserved. While enlisted, he joined the NAACP. When he left the service and moved back to Mississippi, he witnessed white-on-black violence that he believed was meant to intimidate returning Black servicemen. But Moore wasn't intimidated. He was activated. He got a loan to open a gas station in Cleveland, Mississippi.
0: The gas station had a restaurant attached to it. And one of the things that put Amsie in the crosshairs of Mississippi whites was he refused to segregate either his bathrooms or his restaurant. If he wanted to get something to eat, he didn't care. He could sit at his tables.
1: Moore co-founded the Regional Council of Negro Leadership which launched boycotts of businesses that denied Black access. Soon after, he became the president of the Cleveland chapter of the NAACP. In 1957, when Mississippi legislators passed a law requiring voters to interpret a portion of the state constitution in order to register to vote, Moore and Mississippi NAACP Field Secretary Medgar Evers set up citizenship schools where local activists taught reading skills and the Constitution to Black residents. Voting became Moore's focus, but Charlie Cobb says there's resistance, even within the ranks of the civil rights leadership.
0: SICK is very suspicious of voter registration. Seems like a plot to co-opt the student movement and steer it away from direct action, especially because the Kennedys are pushing it. People are deeply suspicious because Kennedy was not all that friendly. His political chestnuts were with the white Southern Dixiecrats, not with the SNCC or CORE or even the NAACP or SCLC. But Moore persists. AMSI didn't have a great deal of formal education, but he had no shortage of ideas and was not shy about articulating his ideas.
1: The Mississippi Delta was two-thirds African-American and a hotbed for white supremacy. It's where the White Citizens Council was born. Moore argued that sit-ins and other nonviolent direct action efforts were not enough. To really change the plight of Blacks, they needed to vote.
0: Amsie has a whole plan for the Mississippi Delta about voter registration, why it's important, and uh, what can be done. He's really interested in the students who are sitting in, and he sees energy he can use for what he wants, which is voter registration or Black power, if you really want to talk about it.
1: The Mississippi Delta Voter Registration Project began in 1962. It was organized out of Moore's home in Cleveland. It was a safe house for Reverend King, Andrew Young, John Lewis, Thurgood Marshall, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and others. Moore often escorted young SNCC field workers to meet with people he knew would support them. Amzie Moore's passion for voting spread In central Mississippi, Madison County had long been majority Black, due mostly to its rich soil that supported not only cotton, but corn, potatoes, and sweet potato. Civil rights activists in the county seat, Canton, first started voter registration efforts in the early 1950s, when 300 Black Canton residents marched to the courthouse to register. Only 40 were successful. Over the next decade, roughly 200 more African-Americans successfully registered to vote in Canton. The effort picked up considerable steam after Moore pushed SNCC, the Council of Racial Equality, and the Council of Federated Organizations to take up voting registration in the early 60s. Taking a pause here to say that if you're interested in following the Mississippi Freedom Trail through places like Greenwood, Lula, Winona, and elsewhere in the state, go to visit mississippi.org or civilrightstrail.com. It's a great way to begin planning your trip. Okay, back to the story. You can't talk about the voting rights movement in Mississippi without talking about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And you can't talk about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party without talking about two women who were instrumental, Fannie Lou Hamer and Unita Blackwell. Fannie Lou was born Fannie Lou Townsend in 1917, the last of 20 children. Her parents worked as sharecroppers on E.W. Brandon Plantation in Sunflower County. They had to turn over most of their earnings to the plantation owner and weren't allowed to leave the plantation without his approval. From the age of six, Fannie Lou picked cotton and only attended school between cotton-picking seasons. She loved reading, reciting poetry, and competing in spelling bees. But when she was 12, she had to quit school to support her aging parents. In her late 20s, Fannie Lou married a tractor driver named Perry Hamer, and they moved to work as sharecroppers on the W.D. Marlowe Plantation. Marlowe realized that Hamer could read and write, so he made her the plantation's time and record keeper. Hamer first became aware of the civil rights movement in the 1950s, but it wasn't until the early 60s that she really became involved. She joined SNCC in 1962 and led a group of 17 volunteers to register to vote at the courthouse in Indianola, Mississippi. They all failed the literacy test. That night, W.D. Marlowe, the plantation owner, fired Hamer and evicted her and her husband from the property, even though he still required her husband to continue working through the harvest.
2: I met Fannie Lou Hamer in 1963 at Amzie Moore's house, and we rode a bus from Cleveland, Mississippi to Savannah, Georgia.
1: Leslie Burl Mclemore is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Jackson State University. He served on the Jackson City Council and was the city's interim mayor for a time. McLemore, Hamer, and others had traveled to Savannah for a workshop on voter registration.
2: Fannie Lou Hamer made the biggest impression on me. She took over the workshop, literally. You know, we were going through the training process, Andy Young and... And Dorothy Cotton and Jean had us doing role-playing and all that stuff. And Fan Lou Hamer had experienced this stuff. I mean, she had been evicted from the plantation. The plantation owner told her to go back to Indonola and uh, take her name off the book because he wasn't going to have that. And she made a decision, you know, I'm not going to do it. So she left. So she was telling that story to all of us. And then she just... She was leading songs. She had this way of of touching you.
1: Shortly after that training, Hamer and several other Black women were arrested for staging a sit-in at a whites-only bus station restaurant in Winona, Mississippi. While in jail, she was brutally beaten, leaving her with lifelong injuries. But they didn't slow her down. McLemore says he... Hamer and others tried getting involved in local and state democratic politics, but were rebuffed.
2: We made some attempts to attend some of the regular party precinct meetings, and that was a failure because a number of the people discovered in the Varigan counties that when they arrived at the appointed time, the regular party officials said the meeting was over, the meeting had been moved, et cetera, et cetera.
1: After an untold number of Black residents were denied the right to vote in the Democratic primary for governor, the NAACP, CORE, and SNCC held their own mock election on August 25, 1963. The official sanctioned primary featured the current lieutenant governor, a militant segregationist, against a former governor who promised to prevent integration through quiet diplomacy. The alternative freedom ballot election featured two well-known civil rights activists. Tens of thousands of African-Americans in Mississippi showed up at churches to vote in the mock election. The event laid the groundwork for the creation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964. Just two days before their state convention, the burned bodies of James Earl Chaney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman the young men who'd come to Mississippi to register blacks to vote were found. That emboldened the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to seek a place at the National Democratic Convention, which was being held in Atlantic City that year. Fannie Lou Hamer, Leslie Burl mclamore and other Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party members went to the convention that year. Hamer spoke passionately before the credentials committee.
2: I was standing in a corner of the room with Adam Clayton Powell, the black congressman from Harlem, from New York. And I had heard Mrs. Hamer's testimony several times. Mind you, going back to 1963, which seemed like a world away, but it was the year before, right? I'd heard it several times in these different meetings because by that time, not only had she been evicted from the W.D. Marlowe Plantation, right? But she had been beaten in Winona, Mississippi, by the trustees there, because they tried to integrate the bus station in Winona. So she had that story too. And she was telling the story of the Winona beatings. Adam Clayton Powell was, was about 6'3", so he was slightly taller than me. I looked up at, at Adam Clayton Powell. He was crying. And I'd heard the story several times, and I was crying again. I mean, just just the the gravity of it. I mean, this unlettered, unschooled black woman, sharecropper, describing living conditions in Mississippi, describing how she had been beaten by the trustees in Winona, Mississippi. It was absolutely captivating.
1: Hamer called for mandatory integrated state delegations. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or MFDP had several white people in its delegation. The state Democratic Party had no African Americans.
2: You know, I was naive. I, I really thought, quite frankly, that given what we had done, the precinct meetings, the Freedom Vote campaign in 63, all of the steps leading to up to becoming delegates and forming the party, and given the history of segregation, and Jim Crowism in Mississippi. Also, the fact that we had tried to recruit white people and had recruited a few for our delegation. I thought that that we had the legal argument, that we had the moral argument. I mean, God clearly should have been on our side. And uh, turned out that we didn't. That the legal argument didn't cut the muster, and I guess they didn't believe in God.
1: The Credentials Committee offered a compromise. The MFDP would get two at-large seats, one for Mississippi NAACP President Aaron Henry and one for the most visible white activist in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, Reverend Ed King, who was at the time chaplain of Tougaloo College. They would be allowed to watch the floor proceedings but not take part. The MFDP rejected the compromise and left the convention. Later that fall, Hamer ran for a seat in Congress, challenging the incumbent, Jamie Witten, a white Democrat who was seeking his 13th term. Here is a campaign speech from Hamer, addressing her frustration with Witten.
3: How else has Mr. Witten used his power in the Congress last year? He used it to prevent the distribution of federal commodities in counties throughout the Delta leaving people hungry, people naked. He's not doing anything far.
1: It's time for us to do something about that. And we need your support. The Democratic Party refused to list Hamer's name on the ballot. So the MFDP held a mock election. More than 60,000 African-Americans in Mississippi voted for her. Four years later, a group of MFDP members calling themselves the Loyal Democrats of Mississippi successfully got themselves seated as the sole Mississippi delegation to the Democratic National Committee. Fannie Lou Hamer was among them. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote that Hamer's testimony educated a nation and brought political powers to their knees in repentance. There are echoes of Fannie Lou Hamer's story in the life of another prominent Mississippi woman, Unita Blackwell, born UZ Brown in 1933 to sharecroppers in Lula, Mississippi. Joanne Morris helped co-write Blackwell's memoir called Barefootin' Life Lessons from the Road to Freedom.
3: She grew up with stories of her grandfather being shot in the sugarcane field in Louisiana for having a disagreement with the plantation owner. His family had been slaves on that plantation. Then her own father, when she was very young, had a disagreement with the plantation owner where they lived in Lula and left in the middle of the night.
1: Eventually, little UZ and her mother joined her father in Memphis. But two years later, Her mother and father separated. Yuzi and her mother moved to West Helena, Arkansas. Life in West Helena was better than on the plantation, but it had its own challenges. Lula, where she was born, had a population of less than 500 people and most of them were black. In contrast, West Helena had more than 8,000 residents and a lot of them were white. She later recounted her stories of growing up to Morris.
3: White kids would throw things at them and yell at them. And one called her the N-word. And she had never been called that before. And she went running home to her mother, who tried to comfort her at best she could. And I loved one of the things that her mother said. She, of course, told her again, as she always had, that that God made her black and that he loved her and she was a good person. And she had always been told that she was supposed to be nice to white people and not hate them. But this was very confusing to her. But what her mother said, she said, you know, white people just don't know any better. And I thought that it's true, but that was the way
1: so white people just don't know no better, baby. UZ had a teacher who took a special interest in her. And one day, that teacher told her she could be somebody. But not with just two initials for her first name. She needed a real name. And she and the teacher looked through
3: books at names that began with U and Z. And they came up with Unita Zelma.
1: During the summer months, Unita Zelma would go back to Mississippi to visit her grandparents to help plant and harvest cotton. She stayed in school through the eighth grade, then had to quit to take a cleaning job. According to family, she was curious and didn't always like to follow the rules or be told what to do. The house cleaning job wasn't a good fit. In her 20s, she met and married Jeremiah Blackwell. He was a cook, and she worked chopping cotton and peeling tomatoes. Another thing she decided she did not like, too many snakes in the fields. A few years later, she found something she liked, a lot. In the summer of 64, a group of civil rights workers came to the small town of Myersville, Mississippi, where Unita and her husband lived. They explained the constitution and the vote.
3: She had never really had any knowledge about voting and then they asked for volunteers and she said she stood up and she punched her her husband in the side and he stood
1: up too and she said and I've been standing up ever since. Within days of meeting those activists from SNCC, Blackwell and several other volunteers went to the courthouse to take the required test. The sheriff ordered them to leave, but they refused. Joanne Morris reads another passage from Blackwell's memoir.
3: Soon a bunch of
1: white fellows came
3: driving by in their pickup trucks and started circling the courthouse. Guns were hanging on gun racks in the back window for all of us to see. This was the first time I ever saw guns displayed in that way, before the 1960s, White men did not usually ride around town with a rack of guns in their trucks. You might have seen a gun every once in a while when the person was going out hunting deer or rabbits or something. Those men weren't hunting rabbits that day.
1: The men parked their pickups on the street around the courthouse, hemming in Blackwell and the others. There were a
3: half dozen trucks, as I recall. They hollered at us from inside their trucks. Go home now. Go home. The sheriff came by again, shouting at us, but we did not
1: leave. The men climbed out of their trucks and walked over to where Blackwell and the others were standing. They had their hunting guns with them.
3: I'd seen these men around town and knew who they were, farmers, most of them. They stopped right in front of us and stood there glaring. Nobody said a word. Their faces were bright red. I had never before seen that kind of rush of blood in a person's face. In those days, a black person wasn't supposed to make eye contact with whites. But I looked right into the eyes of one of those white fellas, and he looked straight at me. And if eyes could have shot me down, they would have done it. Hate mooned out just like a picture. I didn't know what was going to happen next or what I would do. I didn't have a gun. I was, belonged to SNCC, and SNCC believed
1: in nonviolence. I was frozen with fear. She thought about Medgar Evers and the three civil rights workers who had just gone missing in Neshoba County, and about Emmett Till and her grandfather and her father.
3: I could taste and smell reality. These white men, People I saw around town, who sometimes even smiled and spoke to me, were so consumed with hatred for me that one of them might actually kill me just to keep me from registering to vote.
1: a Blackwell described it as a turning point in her life. The next day, both she and her husband were fired from their jobs. They survived on the $11 SNCC sent them every two weeks, the food they grew in their garden, and the money her husband made while cooking for the Army Corps of Engineers, three months out of the year. Over the next few months, Blackwell tried to register to vote three more times. Eventually, she successfully passed the test. When the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights visited Mississippi in January 1965, Blackwell testified about her experience with voter suppression. Unita Blackwell and other activists endured constant harassment, But they persisted. After meeting Fannie Lou Hamer in 1964, Blackwell joined SNCC. She organized voter registration drives across Mississippi. Later that year, she became a member of the Executive Committee of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. She attended the National Convention in Atlantic City. The next year, she and her husband sued their local school district, after their son and more than 300 other black students were suspended from school for wearing freedom buttons that depicted a black hand and a white hand clasped, with the word "snick" below them. The Blackwells argued it was a violation of the First Amendment freedom of speech and political expression, but the suit went farther than that. More than a decade after the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education, the county schools where the Blackwells lived were still racially segregated. The Blackwells lost their claim that the schools infringed on students' First Amendment rights, but won the bigger battle when the school district was forced to desegregate. Over the next 20 years, Unita Blackwell earned her GED, helped launch the Mississippi Delta's first Head Start program for Black children, and worked for low-income housing. She earned her Master of Regional Planning from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She was the first African-American woman to be elected mayor of a Mississippi city. And as president of a national association dedicated to promoting cultural exchange, she made 16 diplomatic trips to China. All of this from a woman who was jailed more than 70 times because of her civil rights work. Again, author Joanne Morris reading from Unita Blackwell's memoir.
3: People have said we were courageous to stand there in the face of that white rage. Younger blacks and whites from my state and all around the country have asked me, where did you get the courage, Unita? I don't know whether it was courage I had or not, but if it was courage, then this is what I know about courage. You don't have to think about courage to have it. You don't have to feel courageous to be courageous. You don't sit down and say you're going to be courageous. At the moment of action, you don't see it as a courageous act. Courage is the most hidden thing from your eye or mind until after it's done. There's some inner something that tells you what's right. You know you have to do it to survive as a human being. You have no choice. That's your a
1: As we come to the end of this series and think about all the stories told in it, we leave you with a thought from T.E. Morris, Associate Professor of African American and African Studies at Ohio State University, Newark. She says it's important to know what these people in the movement did because they inspire others who are just like them today. And I tell my students, when we're studying the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Look at what these students did, these high school students, these college students did with so few resources. Now what should you be able to do? What can you do today when you have access to so much more than they did? And so that becomes inspirational for them and they really begin to think about, okay, what can I do? What can I do in my neighborhood? What can I do in my community? What can I do on campus? And that really helps them understand that you don't have to be a big name. You don't have to demonstrate down at the Capitol building every day, that you can participate in the movement in smaller ways. And I tell them, do what is best and what comes naturally for you. Every contribution to the movement is valuable. After listening to the podcast, follow the actual Mississippi Freedom Trail that traces the entire state. Go to visitmississippi.org or civilrightstrail.com where you can begin planning your trip. In this episode, we heard from journalist and author Charlie Cobb, who was a SNCC field secretary in the 1960s, civil rights foot soldier, longtime Jackson City councilman, and Jackson State University political scientist, Leslie Burl McLemore and author Joanne Morris I'm Marlene Gordon The Mississippi Freedom Trail podcast is sponsored by Visit Mississippi and the U.S. Civil Rights Trail Marketing Alliance The series was produced by Ingredient Creative with Tanner Latham as executive producer and Tanya Ott as writer and director Jessica Martinitis was the producer Elliot Majurzik edited and mixed the sound and Catherine Welch was the researcher.